Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everybody, to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. I'm joined today by Ricardo Herrera, the author of the book, For Liberty and the Republic, The American Citizen Soldier, 1775 to 1861. Now, I must give a caveat as we begin talking about Rick's book. I've used it on several occasions as an assigned reading in my own classes on on American military history at Queens College. It's a very well-written assessment of the origins of our military culture, rooted in an exhaustive survey of letters, speeches, and other primary sources. Essentially, it's just the kind of thing you want grad students to kind of wrestle with and and try to make sense of. That said, Rick, thanks for joining us today. Bob, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Look, uh, you begin your study by calling attention to the point that Americans, you know, both civilians and within the service community, have become estranged from each other. Now, this isn't really news. I mean, many analysts have pointed toward the growing perceptual divide between the military and American society since the 1990s. But you note this is not that new of a phenomenon, despite our cultural memories of earlier conflicts, you know, particularly the Second World War. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things, if you were, if you talk to the, the the typical American, and indeed, I'd even go so far as to say, the typical student that I teach. Uh, as you know, I'm at the School of Advanced Military Studies at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. When I do talk to them, their historical default is essentially World War II, and I jokingly say to my students. You know, World War II seems to be our historical happy spot. You know, we, it's the, the country is all in, and then at least as far as the military piece, it's very much within the Army's comfort zone. It's big forces, it's armor, infantry, field artillery, you name it. It's all going on, and this is really what the Army prefers. But that's another talk. Culturally, however, the story that they've grown up with that very likely you grew up with, I know I grew up with it, is that World War II was the so-called good war. Everybody was involved uh, in some fashion or another. Thus, we have this myth, if you will, that suggests that anything that does not involve the entire population in a war is somehow an aberration. But if you survey American wars, going back to the colonial era, I think, or at least, uh, yeah, going back to the colonial era, what you find is that big wars involving large chunks of the population tend to be the aberration. And as I talk to my students, one of the things that I try to stress is that what they've been doing now as representatives of something less than 1% of the population really is is more typical within their army's history. They're essentially, at least in my opinion, performing imperial policing. They're doing tasks not at all unlike what the Frontier Army did, which was as a constabulary force. 
And it's uh, that force primarily, you know, composed of regulars was very much divorced in some fashion, not totally, but in some fashion from the larger American population. So you have a very small professional force serving, doing policing functions within the continental U.S., within the overseas empire that the United States gains in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War, doing uh, occupation duties following World War One, World War II, and so on. Those, those are really the aberrations, those large wars. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, because you also describe this earlier time in American history where military service, you know, as you say, you know, in the book, it's, it's kind of essential to the context of citizenship. You know, it's this time when there's this vibrant, what you, what you describe as, I'm going to quote here, a military ethos of republicanism that defined the close ties between American civil society and its soldiery that exists in the country's first century. Now, before I go into the specific characteristics of the ideology, I'm inclined to ask, just based on what we, we, we just discussed, how was this possible, given the alleged extent of distrust of military institutions that many historians define as existing in the early republic in the antebellum years. I'm glad you asked that. What you've got is very much an idealized concept of soldiering and citizenship, and that's something that I do point out. A lot of guys, a lot of soldiers, a lot of civilians talk about that, and indeed you see that and hear that today, this idealized version of soldiering, this idealized conception of citizenship, what they're really talking about is the citizen as soldier. Not so much the citizen soldier, but the citizen acting as a soldier, and thus in performing military duty. And again, this is within this idealized realm, that of the militiaman, that of the wartime volunteer. You know, the regular for most of our history, the regular army soldier, that is, for most of American history, was more often, as you pointed out, something of a character of distrust, often even contempt. Um, you know, no dogs allowed, no, no soldiers. You're just as familiar with that as I am. So this points to really this, um, I suppose you could say, platonic concept of what an American citizen should be, someone who springs to the defense of the republic. He doesn't come back expecting much of anything except the, the heartfelt thanks of his fellow countrymen and fellow countrywomen. We know far better that that's really more often, that's really not the case, I should say. You place five key themes at the core of this military ethos of republicanism. You know, virtue, legitimacy, self-governance, God's will, and the national mission. And of course, at the end of glory, honor, and fame. How did you come to identify these? And how is it possible to trace these abstract concepts across the membership of such a large institution, you know, even given its relatively small size during this period? Sure. The, um, the, 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 the themes by which I organized them had absolutely nothing to do with what I set out to do. At first, I wanted to write a book that looked at this concept of soldiering and its citizenship 
And I thought that I would see some sort of split perhaps sometime around 1815, which in my mind marks the end of the American Revolutionary Period, when Americans very much turn their energies and focus from Mother England toward westward expansion. They don't ignore Mother England. However, they do devote a good deal of their energies toward Western expansion. As I was going through the uh, archival research, and I think I note in the book something like 23 different states and well over 40 different archives and libraries, as I read through these soldiers' records, as I read through their letters home, to their orders, through various journals, diaries, orderly books, you name it, they were telling me something different. So, as I went through the records, collected my notes on their writings that addressed this concept of what being a soldier meant, what being a soldier said about themselves, about their fellow Americans, the themes seemed to evolve on their own. So, in a sense, I let them speak to me. Granted, like all historians, my imagination is at work, but these themes seem to emerge from their writings as I was considering them, as I was going through the analysis, as I considered to ponder what they had written. Is there a difference in how the, these concepts that you identified through their writings were understood by, say, regular soldiers as opposed to militiamen or volunteers? You know, one might think that there would be a difference. The records I read, though, ranged from uh, volunteers, militiamen, and regulars. I looked at peacetime and wartime records. I also looked at all ranks, ranging from privates through general officers. And I saw a great number of commonalities shared by them. Thus, my argument that these men were citizens first and soldiers second that their belief in being a citizen, often those who wanted to become citizens, informed how they understood their soldiering as part of this American experiment. Well, it seems that the core theme of your work, of course, ties to the concept of republicanism as a formative ideology, right? Well, i got to ask you, what do you mean by republicanism? And, you know, how, how does it influence and shape American military institutions? First, uh, admittedly, I am using an old and perhaps even, by some measures, an outdated concept, the, um, this Republican ideology. But it seemed to be the best interpretive lens through which to understand these fellows. By Republicanism, and I'm using it in its broadest sense as what it meant to be an American citizen, a member of the Republic. Now, there are were variations on this theme, or as, as I put it, you've got um, these, or as I would normally talk to my students, you've got these, le these wide left and right limits. And so you might have a republicanism within New England that's a more ascetic one, one that believes in a, a stripped-down, bare form, whereas some Southern uh, soldiers, their concept of republicanism speaks more to a, a different view of the political nature of the republic, something in which a proto-aristocracy, and I almost hesitate using that phrase, 
is entirely consonant within what it means to be an American citizen. Well, you know, at first glance, you know, it seems like, you know, you're, you're describing both in the case of soldiers, citizen soldiers from New England and from the South, you know, what they do share in common is that it, it seems like much of this is a focus on literary-minded elites. You know, and I'm thinking of comparisons that can be made with your work and that of Charles Royster. You know, particularly, you know, you know the book, A Revolutionary People at War. Fantastic book. Yeah, really is. And uh, for listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with it, the, the context I'm raising is where Royster describes a rage militaire that underlies the Continental Army's commitment to the revolution. Um, I, I mean, you know, compelled to ask, you know, how do we know that republicanism filtered past a narrow spectrum of officers to exert an effect on so many thousands of enlisted persons? You know, you know really, this is almost a century-long spectrum that you're talking about. Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's an entirely fair question. The, as a, to, not to repeat myself, but going back to these letters and the large number of enlisted men's records, they seem to be fully in tune with this idea. I ascribe it to the larger culture present um, within America, or I should say I, I ascribe it to the larger American culture within this period. You know, we're familiar with works by uh, Linda Kerber and Mary Beth Norton and the concept of Republican motherhood. Sure. And again, while classic works, which is a polite way of perhaps saying dated, they still offer quite a bit of substance for those of us practicing in the field. Thus, I think that this is transmitted by mothers, by the social uh, systems, by society at large to these men who end up joining Right. That's an interesting point. I, I, I've got to say, I just recently worked as a, a thesis advisor on somebody who was working on concepts of masculinity in the German uh, states during the Wars of Liberation. And he makes a very similar points about the impact and influence of German women folk, particularly in Prussia and in Saxony. Um, when it came to keeping alive this almost you know, romanticized notion of the nation, of the self, that translates into you know, military obligation in Germany during the, the Napoleonic period. I, I kind of see, from what you're describing, I kind of see, uh, see an analogy there then where you know, we're looking at the relevance of gender factors within you know, a historical context that often is overlooked certainly by military historians. Yeah, and, and this, is a, this is certainly a piece of it. You know, as far as masculinity, soldiering being an element of defining one's manhood, this is what a man does. And in a sense, you've got this really interesting uh, juxtaposition that these are soldiers who are supposed to be serving in defense of liberty. And in the traditional conception of this, Liberty is feminine, it's weak, it needs to be protected, whereas power, which threatens liberty regularly, and this is going back to Commonwealth uh, ideology in 17th century England, right. but that 
power is all grasping and it must be kept in check. And so these soldiers represent something of a, of a, of a tension, if you will. They are power, but they are also these, uh, symbols of liberty as, as soldiers in defense of the Republic. And again, this is all very much idealized. You can poke holes in terms of the realities of it, and I get it. But as they shape their worldviews, this is what spoke to them. Well, I want to say, you know, the period you focus on, you know, going from the early Republic in the antebellum era up through the Civil War, you know, it's a period of really great ambiguity in terms of the young Republic's appreciation of its standard military, standing military traditions. How does republicanism survive within the army, given you know, the purported cultural and physical isolation that historians have, have credited it, it has with the rest of the nation? Yeah, the, I think quite often the isolation may be overplayed a bit by some, by some of our peers, or some, some of those whom we regard quite highly. If you look at soldiers' letters, particularly officers in this case, they're fully engaged with what's happening in society. The subscriptions to journals, the books they're reading, you'll notice how many of them are helping form post-libraries, the literary societies, and any number of things. There's, all of this seems to speak to an engagement with larger civil society, not a complete divorce from it. Physically isolated, Absolutely. In many cases, very much so. But they're still trying to maintain these contacts back to these familiar cultural moorings. Well, let's take it a step further. You describe virtue as a key facet of republicanism, you know, helping to define it and to frame the American people's relationship with military service. You know, at the same time, though, it seems that this is tied directly to the prospect of voluntary militia service rather than the maintenance of the permanent standing force. You know, I, I come to this from the perspective of being a American military historian, and I see that as a divide. And I, I, I want to know how virtue transcends that divide, how virtue speaks across that, that gulf between the voluntary militia, citizen-soldier com, you know, component, and the permanent standing force component. Yeah, I, th I think virtue really speaks to the desire or the willingness um, to serve something greater than oneself. It comes in, it comes out in a variety of means, but for these soldiers, serving the Republic, serving their fellow man, serving their community, whether as militiamen, whether as volunteers, whether as regulars, was somehow a demonstration of their commitment to the common weal, to the greater good. Thus, there's this willing uh, self-abnegation, this willingness to sacrifice and to put aside their own baser desires, which really probably isn't the right phrase, but that's fine. But to put aside their own selfish desires and to somehow and to to, sub, to sublimate those to subject them to allow service to the greater public good to subsume all that they are about and granted these are for 
typically for very short periods of time. But virtue speaks to their willingness and to their uh, to, to serve others, to their willingness to serve the republic. It's it's a demonstration of their belief in the experiment. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, nevertheless, we can't I can't leave the idea of you know what virtue also signifies, and you, you kind of infer it or refer you know bring it up when you refer to base desires. You know, how, how does virtue survive contact with the base realities of military service? It often doesn't. As, uh, as I said, this is very much an idealized one. Mm-hmm. And as you go through, you often encounter soldiers who are very concerned about how they would appear. Were they to ascribe to some belief system or to give in to their desires to do something Illegal, immoral, unethical, as often happens in wartime with every army. Or in peacetime. In peacetime, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And it, um, they're often wrestling with this, and you can see this coming out in their letters home. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is a constant struggle for them, for many of them, I should say. On an existential level, or on, on, on a spiritual level, or... I, you know, I honestly hadn't considered it in that that part in that uh, <laughs> those uh, manners, but uh, I suppose so. I mean, one of the things because of the often close knit nature of the societies, the towns, the cities from which these these fellows came from, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to prevent myself from speaking about them in the present tense, but they <laughs> live the on. That's a problem all of us have when we, we, we get close to a historical subject, of course. Absolutely. I mean, th- these fellows continue to live through their letters, through their journals, diaries, you name it. Yeah. But, but I, one of the things that many of them, and this is particularly um, present among the, vo- the wartime volunteers and militia, because they, they're coming from generally a small, geographically bounded community, they understand the power of reputation and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself talking about honor, but they understand the power of reputation. They also understand, I suspect, the power of gossip as a policing function. So if I don't behave myself, Joe over there is probably going to write to his sister, his brother, his parents, you name it, and it's going to get out that I have somehow transgressed against the moral norms Therefore, I want to make sure that I am trying to uphold my own uh, standing within the community. Let's turn to legitimacy. You know, how does the quest for legitimacy fare in an American society that at this time is, is really so skeptical, not only over the value and need for you know, standing military institutions, but you know, this is the, the, high, the heyday of, of skepticism for elites throughout American society. And um, the quest for legitimacy is not just limited to the military community. It's also, you know, a a concern expressed by professionals, by physicians, by attorneys, by ministers. You know, in the military context, how does the military community seek to win legitimacy? And who exactly are they looking to get it from? Yeah, what, uh, the, the way that I'm the way that I'm framing legitimacy in this is the establishment or defense of a politically legit of a legitimate political state. Mm-hmm. 
but also one's personal legitimacy. Um, in other words, how what, whether one belongs to the community or not. Right. So it, using military service in wartime or in, in peacetime as a demonstration of the power, the might, the authority, mm-hmm. the legitimacy of the local government, of the national government, but also using it as a demonstration of one's ability to belong to the community. Uh, one of the cases that I've got is um, a fellow from New York, uh, Augustus P. Green, and he belongs to a militia unit uh, that's composed primarily of butchers and I believe uh, draymen, and they form a company of light dragoons. And these are these men have got to be, and this is in the orderly book, they must be sons of Hibernia. So this is explicitly limited to Irishmen. Why? In order to allow Irishmen through some form of military service to demonstrate to their fellow New Yorkers, to their fellow Americans, that by golly, we really are Americans. Look at us. We're donning a uniform. I'm not going to say the uniform because, as you know, militia uniforms, they ran the gamut from plain (laughs) through exotically clownishly circus-like bizarre. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, so these these guys are trying to demonstrate that, look, we are legitimate members of this republic. Look at us. We're using our military service to demonstrate it. We've earned it, dug on it. And you'll see this also, even, even I believe, within some of the, um, some of the early uh, black regiments in New Orleans that volunteer their services to the Confederacy. You know, granted, my study ends at the end of 1861, but you see these these black militia companies, black militia units within New Orleans, and these are very often slaveholders themselves, very fair-skinned uh, black slaveholders who volunteer their arms, volunteer their service to the Confederacy in order to demonstrate that they are good members of the Confederate States of America, Right, which it's, has no little bit of irony. Yeah, certainly not. Certainly not, but it also make, helps us understand that this is a case of self-validation. As Absolutely. Much as it is communal. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's one passage I find fascinating, and I, I don't normally read directly from the book, but in this case, you know, it, it captures so much of the nature of the Republican ethos that you're describing. And in this section, you point out that for many soldiers, you know, both volunteer and regular, during the antebellum period in the Civil War, Military service was as much an intellectual exercise as a physical endeavor. And I want to I want to read the quote first. You, you describe a a quote heady mixture of direct forebears and ancient republicanism allowed soldiers to claim they defended not only the invaluable inheritance of their society and culture, but also the ancient ideas that they believed had inspired their kin. And that's the end of the quote. Mm-hmm. How so? When you read what they're writing, and some of it is makes you wonder, makes you scratch your head, such as William Henry Harrison talking to frontiersmen during the War of 1812, and he's citing examples of ancient Rome and ancient Greece and trying to make these explicit linkages between the ancient world and what these frontiersmen are doing. I don't know how many of them got that got it, but Harrison certainly pushed it. 
So you'll get others of them, however, make these explicit connections between themselves and the revolutionary generation. And that I'm, of course, talking about the Civil War generation. They really try to make it manifest that what they were doing, and this is North and South, they're drawing upon a shared American history, but also a shared American heritage, the past as they conceived it, not necessarily as it really was. And they draw upon these idealized conceptions to inform their own service, and they're also using it as a means to establish standards by which they should conduct themselves. Mm. What kind of standards? In terms of virtue, in terms of uh, serving others, in terms of their own honor, their own um, their own behavior as soldiers, their quest for glory to be remembered, all of these very all of these varied ideas. Right, right. I mean, reconciling validation with military service, i.e., reconciling their manhood with what their community expects of them or what they expect their community to be. Right. And what, but also what they expect of themselves. And, and this, so this, this is one way of, of under, of their understanding who and what they are, but also who and what they should be. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't stress enough. I know I've done this before, but I can't stress enough how much this is idealized. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, this is all, Certainly appropriate and relevant when we talk about those in the, who, who go into military service and have that generational connection to the revolution or to the War of 1812 or the Mexican War. But how, how does the quest for legitimacy accommodate the increase in foreign-born recruits that's taking place during this time? Well, yeah, for, for the foreign-born recruits, you know, many of them see military service as a means by which to gain acceptance. Mm-hmm. Many of them see military service as a means by which to gain perhaps a bounty or some land grant that will allow them to become part of the economic and thus political system so, of the United States. So for them, it's a material exchange then. It's, it's a material exchange, but it's a material exchange predicated upon uh, an ideological and cultural construct. How does that fare? I mean, is there any pushback from nativists within the army? Oh, absolutely. There, there are, you have a number of soldiers riding back and this, you can see this in the war of 1812 where some soldiers are complaining, some officers complaining about the composition of the Corps of engineers. They are furious about appointing a Frenchman. How dare you, Jackson, appoint a Frenchman to be the, the head of the Corps of Engineers in the United States Army. And many of them take a good deal of umbrage at that. There are accounts uh, with, uh, within New Orleans militia units of men taking great offense at having, or allowing, I should say, French Creoles to serve within American-only militia companies. And so there's a real tension there. And this, I think, is on a much smaller level, on a more atomistic level, a reflection of the fissures and the tensions within American society as it was developing in this formative period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's critical, I think, to, to pay attention to that and to note it. 
not because of the sensational characteristic of it. I mean, it is certainly there, but so all too often I, I read historians or writers and commentators who are very easy about presenting the, the American military, specifically the army, um, you know, uh, as this great social experiment or this great social leveler without taking into account that, no, it's, it's not a unique experiment. It's, it's, a, it's the American society in microcosm, and it's experiencing the same tensions, the same push and pull effects. They may be ameliorated by a command structure, but it's still nonetheless very real. Absolutely. And, and, and the command structure certainly does help uh, suppress some of these. But still, even within the, the regular forces, you see some of the many tensions and movements, developments manifesting themselves among soldiers. You see temperance societies developing in the mid-19th century regular army. You see soldiers in the, uh, the early 19th century army and even into the Civil War, particularly among the volunteers, doing things like sending petitions, in some cases to reinstate popular officers. Mm -hmm. So they're manifesting themselves in many ways exactly how they would have as citizens had they remained within the civilian sphere of life. Right, right. But at the same time, I can't, wonder, I can't help but wonder as well the extent to which, again, looking at foreign service, which becomes quite a big phenomenon during the antebellum period for various reasons, which I'm not going to go into. Is there a sense that perhaps there are, are there those within the military community who are looking at foreign-born enlistment, not necessarily as a negative, but looking at it as a phenomenon that is affecting the perception and the reputation of the American military with a civilian community at a time when they're so desperate for for that validation. Sure, there there was there was certainly a concern among some, as as I'd earlier mentioned about the, the case of the Corps of Engineers. Yeah. Yeah. This there's this this concern that this doesn't really speak well about the political health, if you will, of the United States. Never, never mind that he's a, you know, that he may be a capable soldier or a capable engineer, or he meets all the qualifications. It's he's the not... fact that he's foreign born. And so, and so you see, you see, you see this nativist strain developing in some cases or in manifesting a, itself rather. In, in, a, in a political phenomenon, in an institution that we are told by so many historians is apolitical. Absolutely, absolutely, but and, and and the apolitical piece is really something of a shortcut. Well, it's really more of a, I think, in in many ways, more of a twentieth century phenomenon. Yeah. Yes, you had you had the you had the folks like William Tecumseh Sherman, who famously says, that "If if nominated, I will not run; if elected, I will not serve." But you see this political strain. Within the army, you even see splits within the army, different communities, soldiers, large factions not speaking to one another. So to try and... and even before I, the regional breakup. Oh, after, my, even, after absolutely. After absolutely. And so you've got, you've got the army really, in, in some sense, as the republic under arms. And it contains all of the vices, the virtues, you name it that its parent society has. 
much of it ameliorated by the command structure, by discipline, by military justice. However, you simply cannot tamp it all out. It's simply too great a piece of the larger context in which that regular army, but also the volunteers in wartime and the militiamen in wartime and peacetime to which they all belonged. How does self-governance come into play within the American military community? That is, that's, of these uh, different themes, that is a particularly American element. It, in short, it's essentially the ability of the individual to govern, to run, to manage his own life. And so you see this uh, particularly well demonstrated by the militia companies, Their orderly books are an incredibly rich source uh, for military historians to look in. And you see these fellows laying out the rules, the regulations. When you see the development of the volunteer militia company during the 1820s, 30s, 40s, even into the 1850s, they're writing about the design of uniforms, the process by which one gets admitted. So, I mean, very exclusive communities, self-governing, but once you're admitted, intensely democratic within. Of course, this is true with the militia companies. What about the standing army? I mean, it strikes me that that would be completely at odds with with the cultural traditions that we've inherited from our English-based culture, wouldn't it? Yeah, for for the regular army, certainly less so. However, and there's always a however... When you look at soldiers forming, say, uh, the, these, these, these temperance societies, when you look at them writing these petitions, when you look at them coming together to represent a position to their officers, and I think, and they recognize there's some risk attached to it, I think that you're seeing a demonstration of what they see as their right or their ability, their responsibility to exercise some form of self-governance. I'm an American. I'm an American citizen. Therefore, I must be able to govern my own behavior, my own conduct. Yes, it takes place within certain strictures, certain limitations, but I still am allowed to. I still must do it because this is part of who and what I am. But yet self-governance almost tiptoes, I mean, at its purest expression. Does the tiptoe right up to the issue of insubordination? You know, how does the institution tolerate self-governance or allow it to come into play while not allowing it to undermine the legitimacy of the command authority? Most of the, of the records, the soldiers tend to be pretty deferential, and they, they phrase it in such a way so as to make it very plain that they were not challenging authority, that they were not seeking to overthrow the power structure, the command structure. Rather, they were looking at the, uh, recti- the at rectifying some injustice that they perceived. And so the way in which they couch these terms suggests a, a shared thought system, but it also suggests a familiarity with the officers with whom they are petitioning. So they understand what they can do, what they can get away with. 
so they don't really push it. Now, there are some examples. There's a, a particularly a, a Massachusetts volunteer company. These are not regulars. Massachusetts volunteer company during the Mexican War that was ordered to don federal blue. These soldiers protested. They believed, and I believe this is in 1847, and this is just outside of Veracruz. Right. They protested, and they did not want to wear regular army blue. They wanted to wear their militia uniforms. Well, there simply weren't any to be had. So they protested, and essentially they were, went on a work stoppage. That ended pretty quickly when the army decided, <laughs> guess what? You're now going to go to San Juan de Olua, which is the fortress guarding the approaches to Veracruz Harbor, and you're about to turn big rocks into little rocks. <laughs> Let's see how much you enjoy that, soldier. Yeah, it's yellow fever season in about two weeks. So. <laughs> That's right. And it this had an amazing cure on the behavior of these fellows. Mm, I can imagine it would, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's a casual observer that for an institution that so values its legitimacy and has sought to garner respect through proving its ability to govern its own affairs, that, that some of the practices that we see here that linger, you know, including the free election of officers and militia and volunteer companies, uh, some of these practices would undermine any efforts to gain respect. But yet we see it continue through the Civil War as does the problem of political appointment to key officer positions, the ideas of patronage and, and nepotism and such. How do we reconcile all this? How, how do we put it all together? You, you're right. You're, you're pointing out a tension. And elective officers, while certainly being demonstrative of the larger political culture of the United States, that, of course, gives you officers who may be rather reluctant to exercise their authority. Mm-hmm. After all, they're going to have to go home and live next door to these people. They're going to have to go home and live in the same communities as their soldiers. So there was some reluctance. And you're right in pointing out the campaigning, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the electioneering. But there's also, within this, an intense pride on the part of the soldiers to have their own officers. And this is, of course, for the volunteers and the militia. And there, there's a case in there uh, during the, during, in 1861 where one company of New York volunteers turns its back on an officer who was appointed over them. They were going to be damned before they'd take orders from this fellow whom they did not know and whom they did not approve of. So that speaks to some of these fierce bonds of community between them. So I suspect that while this was not the most efficient uh, manner of commanding, it's what worked for them. Uh, and it's, I, I, rather than trying to critique them or criticize them for it, I try to understand them. Well, you know, it makes me, made me think in reading, uh, you know, another, another book that yours draw had led me to draw intellectual comparisons to it was Lauren Foote's book, The Gentleman in the Roughs, particularly oh, yeah. over this point. And you're exactly right. And both of you are exactly right in, in capturing this sense of tension, this push and pull for legitimacy, not merely between, you know, people competing for the same title or for the same office or for the same respect, but between 
you know, upper or middle class officers and their lower class soldiers, you know, who occupy, while they both may be from the same community, they occupy totally different worlds. They, they, they do occupy certainly different political and economic and social worlds. Mm-hmm. However, given the geographic closeness of these communities, it's something that's difficult to escape. Moreover, depending on the time period, particularly in the 18th century, but depending on the time period, quite often the division between the middle class or the middling sort and the lower uh, classes was not too terribly um, pronounced. So there's, there's often a little but a thin line dividing them. And so the, these officers very often cognizant of it. Some of them may only be a generation, or they may be the generation that is removed from those lower circumstances. I'm speaking more towards the issues of social mobility that we are told are so, is so present at the time in American society, certainly. Well, I want to ask, you know, changing the subject a little bit, how exactly does the idea that American military personnel were agents of a divine will take shape? That's, that is a good question. What you see in here, or I should say in, in, the, in the records, what, you, what you'll see within this, within this, as I term it, a providentially ordained republic, is this belief that the United States was God's special project. And granted, this is taking from the from the colonial era. This the, and you get these two extremes. John Winthrop all the way up through Jefferson Ab- to when absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And thus, this this belief that there is a specialness to the United States that somehow um, was a beneficiary of God's providence, of God's will, God's favor, and therefore they these soldiers had to had to maintain his, stay in his good graces, frankly, but they also had to demonstrate that they were worthy of what he had bestowed upon them. And they also, very many of them, tended to believe that they were part of a sacred secular project that was meant to expand across the continent. And you particularly see this in the 1840s. And so this this, this concept of God's will permeates many of their writings, and it's not just the chaplains. They're doing their fair share, granted, but you see these ideas coming out in common soldiers' writings and officers' writings. So something that quite broadly believed in. Mm-hmm. But isn't isn't there? I mean, you would think there must be some pushback, certainly by those who are raised or who come to believe that the military institutions, as agents of the state were supposed to be a religious, certainly in, in terms of their actions and identity. You, you know, you, you would, that would be more consonant, I believe, w- with the, the modern era, with certainly with the 20th century, perhaps the late 19th. Right. But at this time, and I have to speak in broad generalities, given the generally, um, Protestant religious affiliations of Americans, most of them ethnically hailing from Northwestern Europe, they understood it in a manner different from us. And so 
believing that this Christian, this Protestant version of God was the proper one, was simply second nature to them. And you see this in the appointments of chaplains throughout the army. How does that reconcile with the arrival of Catholic soldiers then? I mean, what kind of tensions materialize at that point? This is something that that ties in really with the Catholics trying to demonstrate their fitness for for belonging. But you'll see particularly the the views of of many of these these Protestant officers, their anti-Catholicism really comes to the the fore during the Mexican War. Mm -hmm. And you will see... not in the Quite face a, of Irish recruitment, but rather <laughs> as an outcome of, of fighting against the Mexican. Well, sure, absolutely. Fighting, fighting against the people whom many, many of these officers uh, consider to be a, a lower form of human being, uh, who believe that, that because of this, often most Me- uh, Mexicans being the descendants of Spanish and Indian blood, they consider Mexicans to be mongrels. And they also consider their religion to be some bastardized, idolatrous form of worship. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they and they are they were incredibly contemptuous of this. Now, you do have some folks who stand out, people like Winfield Scott, who orders uh, many of his officers to attend mass with him in order to establish goodwill among the Mexican population. Absolutely, but you quite often see some pretty blatant contempt for Catholicism as well as for what these men regarded as their racial and ethnic inferiors. Yeah, yeah, I, I've seen it, actually. I mean, there, there are very few medical officer reports that survived from the Mexican War, largely because the Surgeon General at the time, uh, Lawson, he felt it was more appropriate to accompany Winfield Scott than, say, in Washington, where he belonged. Um <laughs> Be that as it may, but you know, you do see in the reports that medical officers produce after the war, and particularly in, in Texas and in other southwestern territories. I mean, the the virulent, virulent racism and anti-Catholicism from professional physicians. You know, that's you know, the army is the one place where professionally trained physicians had a home in American society. Um, well, this was the, after all the, you know, the the age of phrenology, the pseudoscience. Oh, very much. So, so professional or not, medical or not, how do you divorce someone wholly from his cultural moorings? I don't think it's possible. It, it isn't. It isn't. And that that's where I'm kind of going to with this. That's the value of your book. I mean, to be to be you know laudatory at this point. Oh, uh, what, what I think one of the values of the books for for teaching and just even for for self information, you know, for um, for professionals who, professional historians who need to continue expanding our frame of reference and knowledge. Um, well, how how exactly does one account for soldiers seeking respect and legitimacy through the acquisition of glory and honor in a culture that rejects title and privilege and other aristocratic trappings? Absolutely. What you've got are you think you think about the nature, and I and I'm let me talk about the extreme. You know, this the the, the rather ascetic nature of republicanism. It's the, the severity and this rejection of awards, of decorations, and so on. You know, in fact, you're not going to see you're not going to see 
an official decoration in the U.S. Army until the Civil War with the Medal of Honor. Yes, George Washington Washington had instituted the Purple Heart during the War of Independence, but that goes by the wayside. And so really it's not until the Medal of Honor during the Civil War that you will see a formal system of decorations come about. Humans are humans. We want to be distinguished. We want to be distinguished among our peers. We want their respect. We want our own self-respect. Therefore, this concept, these concepts of glory, honor, and fame course through many soldiers' writings. This is how I gain a reputation, through bravery on the battlefield. This is how I earn the esteem of my fellow soldiers, by distinguishing myself in combat, by being a good soldier, you name it. And so because of this, these concepts, rather than the formal decorations, and I'm not saying that there weren't decorations that units often adopted, but because of a lack of official decorations within the U.S. Army and generally within the militia, you have soldiers who want to somehow stand out, and this is the only way doing it. Given the smallness of these military communities, it's fairly easy to earn this reputation. Sometimes it's a bad one, but it's fairly easy to earn a reputation. So at the end of the day, which of these factors were the most important to the American soldiers who pursued them? All of them. As, as, I, as I argue, these, these themes, these threads often overlap. And so they, so you will see shadings of concepts. And I don't think that you can really unravel them without doing damage to the much larger argument about this military ethos of republicanism. So I think what we've got to do is rather than considering them as separate entities, as separate components, it's best to understand them as elements within a thread, but a thread that you really cannot separate without doing damage to the greater whole. Is there a place for this type of Republican ethos in today's military or in today's society? Have we lost it? Good question. I've had the chance to talk to some of my students, uh, some of them who have looked at the book or read it, and they've, they've asked me. I'm rather loath to uh, talk about it to them. It smacks too much of self-promotion, as I, <laughs> as I am here now on an interview. <laughs> Hypocrite that I am. No. But... <laughs> I, I made the offer, Rick. So come. <laughs> no. But what, um, some of them have told me that what they have read in it that they think that they see many elements still within the army. I I don't know. I if so, I think that this would be fertile ground for for a young ambitious or an old ambitious graduate student or historian to explore. There are uh, any number of records, any number of soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen who I'm sure would love to be interviewed and to see if perhaps this continues or to take this what I've written as a starting point, and then go off and explore new places. That's a great call to action for any of our listeners who are so inclined. Please do. Please do. Rick will certainly buy you a beer at the end of the day. <laughs> and I'll drink one with you. 
There you go. Rick, we're at the point where I'm, I'm, I, we generally ask our guests two final questions about what your future holds and what you're into now. So we'll go with the latter first. Is there anything in particular that you're reading or that you've watched or seen on the Internet that you might recommend to our listeners? Oh, gosh. You know, it, when it comes to reading, it's rather sad. I really do like to read detective novels and mysteries. Um, yep, that's my trashy reading. One of my favorites, of course, is Michael Connolly and his, his character, Harry Bosch, who's a detective oh, yeah. on LAPD. Oh, yeah, a, I, I, I know those books. Yeah. yeah, well, as a native Angelino, it reminds me of home. And uh, L.A. is a hard place to love, but it's home. Right now, though, I, I'm reading uh, Frank McLinn's Burma Campaign, Disaster and Triumph, 1942 to 45. It's a great book, it, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating account. We use uh, Field Marshal Slim's accounts of the Burma Campaign as part of our uh, teaching in our course on design and operational art. And so I wanted to get to know more about this for my own knowledge and also, to, just frankly, to be a better teacher. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. but I'm, I, I'm promising myself, let's see how well I keep it. I'm promising myself that I'm going to read nothing but fiction for six months, starting in January. Let's see how well that works. I'll, I'll check in with you in, uh, in April. Please and, do. And ask about that. Yeah, please do. <laughs> well, then that's the last question. Where do you go from here? Can you, can you say a few words about your next project? Sure, sure. Um, I am going back into uh, my historical happy place, the 18th century. Right now, I'm working on a book that examines a foraging operation that took place in February and March of 1778 that George Washington launched while, uh, and while the army was encamped at Valley Forge. So, um, I've been working on that for a while. I'm hoping to complete the uh, book manuscript by this time next year and get that submitted. So that's coming, that's coming along nicely. After that, I intend to go a little bit further back into the 18th century and I will be looking at the British campaigns against Havana and Manila in 1762. Oh, and what I want to do is link these together at the strategic level and essentially argue that this is the, or I should say this was, this was the fullest exposition of 18th century military power that nobody else could muster military force and project it on a global scale like Georgian Britain did in these two examples. Wow. Well, I look forward to both those books. Thank you. Um, and you'll, you'll win yourself another interview seat, <laughs> or at least one of them. Uh, that's great. Rick, thanks for joining me today. Hey. I mean, this has been long overdue. I, pre I appreciate it, Bob. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, thanks again for the invite. This has uh, really been enjoyable. I'm glad. I'm glad. And for our listeners, this is Bob Wintermute with New Books in Military History. Thank you again for listening.